Welcome to the Renaissance Church Podcast. Our mission is to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel into all of life in all the earth. This is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church here in Richmond, Texas. And if you've not joined us in a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we would love to have you join us. You can find out more information at rin-church.org. And I pray that you are encouraged and edified by the proclamation of God's word today. Have you ever wondered what the Apostle Paul would write to our church? Like if, if the Apostle Paul had written a book to us, like if he had come to Richmond and he had, you know, shared the, the good news about Jesus and we are like, yeah, like we, we believe and he gathered us into a church and then he went on to the next town and then he writes a letter and, and if it didn't say, you know, Galatians or, or Philippians or Colossians, but it said Rich, Richmondians, Richmondites, Rich... Richmondonians? I, I don't even, I have no idea what we are, okay? So, somebody help me. Does anybody know what we are? No, we, we have no clue, okay? But if, if it had our name on it, like, what would he say? Well, if you understand that the Bible is a timeless, eternal, God-breathed word that is sufficient for every age, time, people, place, then the answer is this. It would say the same thing it says right now. The exact same thing. And what I've had on my heart is that as I've been reading the New Testament ever since I became a Christian, I've noticed some themes, and I call them the concerns of the apostles. And these concerns, they span like multiple books. Like you see it come again and again, and it's there and it's there and it's there. It's like in every book you see these themes emerge. And the two themes that I want to focus on this week and next is what I would call false teaching. They were really, really, really concerned about false teaching. And the second thing that emerges over and over and over again is sexual immorality. Okay, those are the two things that I want to talk about today and tomorrow. Today, I want to first talk about um, gender. I want to talk about gender this morning. And I'll just say this on the front end, is that Jesus came with grace and truth. Yes. Amen? Jesus came with grace and truth. And what we're going to do as people who follow Jesus is we're going to be people who pursue grace in truth, as we talk about a, an issue that is very charged right now in this moment, in this week in our, in our state legislature, there was very heated exchanges that were happening, okay? This is not a political sermon. This is a Jesus follower sermon. Does that make sense? Okay, grace and truth. And I, I want to start with one of the letters from the apostles, the apostle Paul, in Colossians chapter 2. So if you have a copy of scripture, want to go there with me. Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to have these on the screen. Um, we're going to uh, spend the first, really, kind of the bulk of our time here. And I'm going to show you some other passages that I think will help us as we kind of discover together, what does the Bible teach us about this issue that is so charged in our day? 
So Colossians chapter two, uh, I'm gonna be in verses eight through 10, and here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. This is God's word. So here we have him. He's, he's speaking to the people that are in Colossae, right? And he's writing this letter back to the Richmondians of that place. And he's got something here that he wants to warn them about. He says to be careful, which it means to, to see, to perceive, and to discern. Okay? Discern cautiously. Be careful that no one takes you. Now, who's the you he's speaking of? And if you've studied the Bible before and you know this, this practice, you can go to the beginning of the letter. You can see exactly who is he talking to. Now, let's just be very clear who he's talking to. He says, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters. So who is he talking to? He's talking to Christians, okay? So in a letter to believers that would have been gathered in a church like this, he says, be careful that no one takes you captive. That word captive, let's just talk about that for a second. That literally would be to carry someone off as a slave, He's not using this term in a positive manner, right? It's to take captive. Another way is uh, you could understand it to take hostage, right? If you've seen enough movies to see some hostage situations, right? The goal is you don't shoot the hostages, amen, right? You don't want to do that. You, you want to take out the bad guy, but you don't want to shoot the hostages. And here's the thing. Paul's writing a letter from physical captivity in prison to a church, and he's warning them about a captivity that would be worse than being imprisoned. He says that it is a, it is a type of philosophy, that it comes through philosophy and empty deceit. That word deceit can also be translated as a delusion, and I think those descriptive words are important, hollow and deceptive, meaning it lacks substance. It's like if you got a package of M&Ms and you were so excited and then you took a bite and you realized it was just a shell. There's no chocolate on the inside. And your children, if you get it, they would start crying immediately because it's hollow, right? It lacks substance. And it's deceptive. It's lying. It's lacking and it's lying. They needed discernment because it was going to be based upon human tradition. And he uses this phrase that it was based on the elements of the world rather than on Christ. Meaning this is going to sound plausible to you. It's going to sound plausible. So discern. Be careful. And he's warning them about something that would harm them, a, a false teaching. 
which he contrasts to the teaching that is based upon Christ rather than on Christ. So I want to just draw out a couple conclusions from what we just read. The first one is this. People are not the enemy. Okay, did y'all hear me say that? People are not the enemy. Paul is not giving a scathing rebuke of people in the church that are da 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 or of the culture. He's not declaring a culture war. He's writing to Christians, and he's saying, beware, and he's saying, here's what you need to be aware of, philosophies, ideas, teachings that are coming in, and they will harm you. He loves them, and he wants to warn them. The second conclusion, false Philosophies enslave, but Christ liberates. There's a beautiful phrase. He says, in him, all the fullness of Christ dwells bodily. Like that's, what? In Jesus, he was fully God. All the fullness of the deity dwells bodily in Jesus, okay? And here's the cool part of that you have been filled or have been given fullness. And that word, it's like to fill up what's lacking. It's to fulfill. It's to complete. And this is the offer of the good news of Jesus for you, is that God wants to fulfill and to complete what is lacking in you. Amen? That's a good word. If you've ever felt a sense like, man, something's missing, something's wrong, I just, oh, I feel so empty, I feel so lost, I feel so, whatever the word that you would use, it's like, I want to tell you that Jesus has come, not just for heaven out there someday, but he's like, literally, he wants to bring his presence into your life right now, and he wants to complete what is lacking in us. This is the great honor and joy and privilege for those who call Jesus Lord. So that's what he's saying. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about gender and just talk honestly about where we are right now in our day, because you and I are swimming in a sea of ideas every single day. I have a son who's in elementary school, and almost every week we have a conversation about these kinds of topics, because guess what? All the kids in his class are talking about it. All the kids, the kids are trying to figure out, what am I? Who am I? Am I, am I gay? Am I homosexual? Am I, do I like girls? Do I like, you know, it, it, they're trying to wrestle with terms and ideas that they're just barely beginning to understand. So this is very, very, I think it's very important for us, and, it, and it's very um, important in the moment that we're living in right now. What does the Bible have to tell us about gender, and what is, what is it? And I know, okay, I, I know, in a room like this, we probably all don't agree about all these things, okay? So if, if you're like, man, I don't know about what you're saying. I, I'm a little concerned about where this is going. I just want to ask you to give me some grace this morning and just to listen to what I have to say. I know it's not a somewhere out there issue that some of you might be struggling with your own gender right now. 
Some of you have a very, very close friend, a very close family member who is struggling in their gender right now. Some of you have grandchildren that are struggling with gender issues right now. And I just want to say grace and truth, grace and truth. I know. And we approach this humbly as fellow sinners who are redeemed and being redeemed by Christ. So, it has long been held that gender equals biological sex. That, that's been the prevailing thought about gender. I was at the doctor's office this week, like many of you parents have done, and you're filling out like the same information on 20 forms, one right after the other in the doctor's office, and there's a box, and it says gender or sex, and you pick male or female. You're checking one, but if you've noticed, there has been another box added right? It's, it's undecided. I think, uh, I believe the first passport, American passport was issued recently in the last couple of years, and it was not male, male or female, it was X. Like, this is X. Like, it's, you know, they're not saying what they are. So there's a, a change, and it's been a very rapid change in our, uh, in our country, in our culture, that gender does not equal biological sex, Okay. I'm going to quote from the American Psychological Association. Here's what uh, they say. Sex is assigned at birth, refers to one's biological status as either male or female, and is associated primarily with physical attributes such as chromosomes, hormone prevalence, and external and internal anatomy. Gender refers to the socially constructed roles, behaviors, activities, and attributes that a given society considers appropriate for boys and men, or girls and women. So, they're saying, in, in the definition, is that sex is what you are biologically, gender is what you feel you are on the inside, okay? That's, that's, the, um, that's the line, and, and there are phrases that, that you hear commonly, and it's that gender is a social construct. It's a social construct, right? And there's all kinds of stereotypes about what a, a boy does and what a girl does and all those kinds of things. And that's a social construct. And so that's why we are the way that we are. It's, we're just kind of molded like, like jello in a mold. Like we just kind of fall into a mold and that's just what kind of what society stamps upon us. We, we have, have phrases like gender is fluid or gender is a spectrum. And I think this, this is important for us to understand because this is an idea, and, and it's not a recent idea, but it's an idea that we need to be thoughtful about. Um, there's a conservative political commentator named Matt Walsh, and uh, you may love him, you may hate him, I don't know. But he caused a stir with a 2022 book and documentary called What is a Woman? And what he did is he went to uh, college professors, he went to psychiatrists, politician, um, I mean, all the experts that he could go to, and he went to them and asked the question, what is a woman? And he was surprised that literally no one would answer the question. They wouldn't do it. 
They might use some, some nebulous language and he would ask a follow-up question to kind of clarify. It was like, no, what you're trying to do right now is you're trying to corner me, right? You're trying to get me into this box. And so they would just kind of like shut it down. Like they, they could not or would not answer the question. And I think that's, the, um, that's what we're feeling right now culturally is that, what is it? What, what is gender? Uh, we have all the debates. We have debates about restrooms. We have debates about dormitories, sports, and uh, sports teams. We have uh, debates about parental consent, pronouns, lots and lots of stuff for us to wade through and navigate as a culture. Um, in USA Today's 2023 Women of the Year, it featured two biological males this year, right? And what I am concerned about is that the language around the issue is very binary, meaning this, you are affirming or you have hate speech. You're inclusive, or you, you have bigotry. There is no spectrum in between those terminologies. Does that make sense? And I don't think that's fair. I think that's manipulative. And I think it's, it makes people like you, who want to be decent people, who want to love your neighbor, who, who want to be kind and generous and humble and all the things that we aspire to be, I think it makes you feel cornered and coerced into one particular yes or no, A or B, affirming hatred. And so what, what, what I want to just contend for is, can we talk about this in a way where we can work through this together and consider what it is that the Lord has said about gender, okay? That's what I want us to do. So I, I, I just want to give you a terminology that is important for you to understand. The term is gender dysphoria, What's, what has been emerging, what's more prevalently emerging, is this term gender dysphoria. It's a condition in which a person experiences a conflict between their biology and what gender they believe they are. And here's, hear my heart. This is a real issue. This is not a fake issue. It's not a made-up issue. It is a real issue condition that people are struggling with. And so beyond all the fighting about terms and words and who's this and who's that, it's like there are people who are having real struggles with this thing. And I think as believers in Christ, we need to be called to compassion. It's real. People feel this way. There's a, another term, it's called rapid onset gender dysphoria, which what we're seeing is a kind of a cultural phenomenon in which um, I want to say there is a clinic in London that has dealt with gender and transitioning. And 10 years ago, they had like 34 clients. And today they have over 1,400 clients right now. And, and there's, um, 
there's a bit of a, a, a contagion around the idea, especially it's affecting teenage girls specifically. Right, there's, there's a, a real eruption of this. Okay, so we just, we want to approach this with grace and with compassion because it's a very real issue. Does the Bible have anything to say about this? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And that's why I want to, I want to journey through four passages. I want to do it really as quickly and precisely as I can. The first one is this, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. This is a famous passage. You probably already know this. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, plural, father, son, spirit. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Get this, this is the first poetry that ever happens in the Bible. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Beautiful. I just want to remind you that the first five books were written by Moses, who had spent a, a combined total of 80 days on a mountain where a fire came down with smoke and consumed the top of the mountain in Mount Sinai, okay? And he's been in there, and when he comes down, his face is glowing, and people are freaking out. They're like, this is weird, okay? This man has been in the presence of God for 80 days. He writes the first five books of the Bible, and he comes down, and he writes this, and he breaks out into poetry, and the, the poem is a Hebrew poem, which is not about rhyming, but it's about parallelism, in which it's, it's going to say the same thing in slightly different ways. It's got almost like a circular quality to it, like an A-B-B-A structure. And if you notice, it says, God created the man. He created him in the image of God. It says, in his own image, he created them male and female. And he's very specific. And here's the truth that I wanted you to understand, is that God created male and female as distinct embodied genders. Distinct embodied genders. And the man by himself could not fully reflect the image of God. So God creates a helper, a suitable uh, a companion for the man, and he says, whoa, man, and the name stuck. Okay? And now, together, they're different. Together, they reflect the image of God, who said in our image, Father, Son, Spirit. So he creates male and female as distinct, binary, embodied genders on Mother's Day, right? The only biological way that you can come into the world is through the distinction and differentiation that God created at the very, very beginning. The second verse verses. Genesis 3, 7 through 10, you know the story. Things are going great for a minute. Then the fall comes. They sin. Verse 7, 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, there's lots of things that we can draw out of that particular passage that are very, very pertinent to our lives today. But one of the things that I want to draw out is this, that as soon as there was a spiritual rebellion against God, it it results in like a, oh gosh, moment, right? They're covering themselves as they are It says their eyes are open. They see their nakedness. And here's what's important to understand. For the very first time, their body became a problem. Think about that. Probably every person in this room in some way has struggled with their body or with their body image, with something about their body. Every single one of us. The reality is that we have we all have a distorted perception of our own bodies because of what happened in Genesis chapter three. All of us. Okay, that's that's a word not just for people who are struggling with gender, that's literally me and you and whoever else might be struggling with whatever issue. For the first time, their body is a problem. And here's the truth that we need to understand. Spiritual sin has psychological and physical effects. It does something to us, okay? Gender dysphoria is an example of this that we see happening in Genesis chapter three. My body is a problem. The other thing I want, I don't have time to read it, but if you read further, God issues curses, and there's a curse for humanity, you will die. But then he says, to the man, there are specific curses. To the woman, there are specific curses. And I want you to understand that there, there were gendered curses. The woman is cursed in a way that has to do with her relationships, and the man is cursed in a way that has to do with his work. And I, I guarantee you that that's playing out in your life today. Third verse. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman is not to wear male clothing, and a man is not to put on a woman's garment. For everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord your God. Now, when we talk about a more, what we'd call historic orthodox understanding of gender and sexuality, one of the phrases that you will hear someone say is, that's really old-fashioned. That's really old-timey. That's old-timey religion. Like, get with the times. I used to have a Hindu friend, and uh, we would kind of try to evangelize each other as we walked around the track while our kids were playing soccer. They're practicing soccer. And I'm like, I'm, like, I'm praying, like, Lord, when the, I just want to win this guy to you, Jesus. And I think he's doing the same thing. He's like, oh, praying to whatever gods. is like, you know, I'm, I'm going to get this guy, right? He's going to see. And, and so we were just kind of like, we were going back and forth in a very friendly way, okay? This is not like combative. But um, he said, you know, the problem with you is we update our things every now and then. So when there's problems, we can just kind of update them. And it's like, that's not a problem anymore. But we have this pesky little Bible right here. It says the the grass withers and the flowers fall. 
All the nations are like grass, the glory of man, like the flowers of the field, right? It will all pass away, but the word of the Lord stands forever. When, when the thoughts of this age and the thoughts of the next age and the thoughts of the age after that, when all those pass away, what will still be standing is this. It's unchanging. And the thing is, when Moses came down from the mountain with a word from God, what was already happening is that women were wearing male clothing and men were putting on women's clothing. And God has to say, very specifically, is detestable to me. This was written about 1300 BC, okay? It, it, so it just it lets us know what is old-fashioned. Well, the problem is that there's nothing new under the sun, and it's always been a problem. From Genesis chapter 3 on, our bodies have been a problem. And here's the truth, the truth that I want to draw out that gender reverse practices are clearly sinful and condemned by scripture, condemned by God. My last verse, Matthew 19, three through six. This is an important verse, okay? What's happening in the context is that Jesus is being asked a question about divorce, but he responds in an interesting way about divorce, and I think it helps us think about whatever issue is asked of us. Let's just read it. Verse three, some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female, and he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, talking about sexuality. Verse six, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Here's why this is important to me. We, grow up, we uh, have grown up in an evolutionary mindset, which means that uh, we don't know about that whole Genesis thing. It's an allegory. It's a story. It's meant to tell a point, but it didn't really happen. There really was no Adam or Eve, right? In fact, did you know that one of the driving forces of slavery is that people thought that people who had brown skin had evolved differently than people who had white skin, and therefore they were less than? Whoa, it's dangerous philosophy. Jesus affirms, Jesus who rose from the dead and said everyone, told everyone he was going to raise from the dead, told him how he was going to die, and then he died exactly how that he said he was going to die, and it fulfilled all the thousands of years of prophecy before. Like that Jesus just affirmed the creation account of an Adam and an Eve. And what he does is he takes a question, he says, have you not read? He finds the truth, and then he applies it to the situation. Okay? That's what Jesus just did. And so he quotes his Genesis account, and here's what he affirms in the telling of the truth. He affirms God's intentional binary creation of humanity as male and female. And this is the reason why I'm a creationist, because of what Jesus does in this very moment. 
So I, I just want to recap the things that we just said. Um, here, here's, if you go to that next slide. So God created male and female as distinct binary embodied genders. Spiritual sin has psychological and physical effects. Gender reverse practices are clearly sinful and condemned by God. And fourth, Jesus affirms God's intentional binary creation of humanity as male and female. That's what we just saw in those four passages. Now, let me just shift gears for a, a minute because what I think is happening in your minds and in my mind as I read those is that that may not be the crux of the issue for you. Right? I mean, we have 50 or more Christian denominations or networks who have all said, we reject all four of those statements that were just on the screen. We reject those and we affirm people as they are, as gay, lesbian, trans, whatever terminology. We affirm that. They're welcome. They can be pastors and whatever. So clearly, there's, there's a whole spectrum of Christians. And the question is, why? Why? Could it be that the concern of the apostle has taken shape and root, that people have been led astray, taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy? I'm just going to just throw that out there as like maybe that's what's happening. Interestingly, one of the false teachings of that time was Gnosticism, which had all kinds of things around it. But one of the things about Gnosticism was a dualistic understanding of the body in which your physical body was different from your internal sense of self, right? Your inner being, and that those two are in conflict with each other. And they're trying, one's trying to rule the other one all the time. And so what happened is some of those people who believed that were like, I am going to like, almost like a Buddhist, I'm going to escape all desire. And what they would do is they would meditate and they would try to understand the levels of heaven so that when they died, they would know the passwords and codes and levels to get all the way through the afterlife. So they were self-deniers. The other ones were like, what? This is evil anyways? Party time! It's all going to burn, baby. <laughs> and they did it all. And they believed that their inner person was very, very different from their outer person. That these were always in conflict. It was thrown out by the leaders of the early church because they said, this is not reality. What God has created is he's given us bodies. And yes, our bodies have become a problem for us, all of us. And if we have feelings of like, man, my gender is wrong, I think what God says to us is, look, I've given you this, and I, I want you to just trust me. I want you to trust me, okay? So let's talk about the crux of the issue. The first is this human flourishing this is where our hearts are. We love people. We care about people. We like people. We want to be friends with them. We, we want our kids and our grandkids to know that we're for them. We, we, we love them. And so we say things like this. 
I just want to be happy. I just want you to be happy. I just want them to be happy. What harm can it do? Um, there's a well-known figure in our culture named Jazz Jennings. There's a show called I Am Jazz on TLC. In 2014, um, Jazz Jennings co-wrote a book with an author. It's a children's book, and it's called I Am Jazz. And the, the idea of the book is to introduce children to transgender, okay? And so it talks about on the back cover that Jazz was born with a girl's brain inside a boy's body, right? Feeling gender dysphoria, a real condition, by the way, okay? Jazz was born with a girl's brain inside a boy's body, and it depicts in the pictures uh, Jazz in boy clothes, boy clothes, boy clothes, and then Jazz tells her parents, the parents come around Jazz, Jazz has now girl clothes on for the rest of the story. And it says, Jazz, uh, I think the exact text says, it made me smile, smile, smile. I was very, very happy. And that's what we want for people, right? We want people to be happy. Yet a month ago, on the reality television show, Jazz Jennings confessed, I just want to feel like myself. All I want is to be happy and feel like me, and I don't feel like me ever. There's a growing chorus of detransitioners there's a man by the name of Walt Heyer who um, was married with children but felt conflicted inside of his own body. And he decided with the help of, a, of some counseling and a psychiatrist that he was going to transition. And he lived for eight years as Laura and, and he um, had no problem uh, in the state of California changing his legal name from uh, David Heyer to Laura, I can't think of his last name. No problem. And after eight years, he felt very depressed, deeply depressed, very, very conflicted. He had been going to a church, and with the help of a pastor, he began his journey of detransitioning. He had the surgeries, he had the blockers, he had the whole thing, okay? He started a ministry to help people, because what he said, he goes, what I found is that nobody tells the other half of the story. Nobody talks about that. Everyone wants to celebrate somebody being themselves. And he's saying, look, I never felt like myself. The reality is that transitioning never takes us further into who we really are. It actually moves us further away from who we really are. He um, compiled some stats. 20% regret transition procedures, 41% attempt suicide after transitioning, 50% have depressive symptoms, 90% of those who transition have significant psychopathology, meaning issues produced by trauma, abuse, or other factors that are unresolved. And what he's saying is, look, this is not flourishing. Many are unhappy and they're harming themselves. And yet Paul tells us, in Christ is all the fullness of God dwells bodily, and you have been given fullness in him. 
transgender ideology, it's offering a counterfeit completeness that only Jesus can give. The second question that I think is on our hearts as we swim in this current that we're in, who has the right to say, right? Who am I to say that? Who am I to say what a person is? Who am I to say to my child what they are or aren't? Who can tell me who I am? The question is about authority. And I believe the identity crisis of our day, I don't have time to go into it, but if you just trace the, the thought of postmodernism, okay, and the eroding of all kind of absolute points of reference of like, okay, this is true, and this is true, and now I can locate myself between those things, like all that's eroded, and it's like, no, no, truth is literally whatever you think it is on the inside, and who am I to say? And there's, there's an identity crisis that is rampant because of that reality. And to a, a, a person who has this question, here's what I want to ask, is who knows you best? Is it you? Is it your friends? Is it your, your family? Is it an online community? Like who knows you best? And here's what I just want to say from the authority of the word of God is that Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And when you're thinking, God, who am I? He actually has answers for you. Who knows what's best for you? Do you know what's best for you? Or um, what we do is we just Google it. I don't know. I'm just going to search it online, right? I'm going to follow what's trending or social media or whatever, TikTok, whatever platform. Who knows what's best, your friends or your family? Is it that book you read? Here's what I want you to know, is that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He leads me, right? He leads me into green pastures, He knows what's best for you. And he's given you some guidance to help you. Thirdly, who loves you most? Who loves you most? Do you love you the most? Do your parents love you the most? Do your friends, does your therapist love you the most? Does your online community love you the most? Jesus loves you so much, he died for you. And he said this, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Who has the right to say? Authority, which we get the term author from. The author is authorized to say. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? The author who in Genesis 1 created us male and female, who knit you together in your mother's womb, the author is authorized 
to say who you are. What are we called to do as followers of Jesus? I just want to land this right here. Four things. Avoid unhelpful stereotypes. I, I read this from Preston Sprinkle. He says, as we talk about gender, we need to be careful not to stuff modern expectations of gender into biblical categories of male and female. The fact is, most of our assumptions about masculinity and femininity come from culture and not from the Bible. The Bible never says, for instance, that men must be athletic, unemotional, and aggressive, nor does it say that women must love wearing pink and having babies. Think about it. Were Bezalel or, oh, or Oholiab, if I can say it, being manly men when God gifted them to make artistic designs and so finely worked garments in Exodus 31? Or were they only masculine when they were cutting stones and carving wood? Was David being a man when he was killing Goliath or when he was playing his harp and writing poetry while his brothers were off at war? Was Deborah being feminine when she led Israel to war in Judges chapter 4? Was J.L. living out her womanhood when she drove the tent peg through Sisera's head in Judges chapter 4? And how about Proverbs 31? Is she being feminine when she considers a field and buys it? Or only when she provides food for her family? Was Jesus being masculine when he cried over Jerusalem and said he wanted to gather his people as a mother hen gathers her chicks? Or was he only being manly when he turned over the tables in the temple? Do you see what he's saying? That there are stereotypes that if we're not careful, we're just going to reinforce some sort of narrative that is not even biblical. So you can just shed that, avoid it. The second thing is clarity. Paul says to you, discern, beware, watch out. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. You need to be clear in your heart about what are you looking to? What are you looking to? To the confused, Jesus gives clarity. You know what you can affirm in a person when you want to affirm them? Here's what you can affirm. What the author says about them. That they're loved. That he treasures them. That he desires a relationship with them. That he cares about them more than anybody on the planet. You can affirm that over and over and over again. The next, compassion. To the hurting, Jesus gives compassion. What I loved about Jesus is that in his day, there was like all the, the, the sinners, all the tax collectors, all the people that were like, religious people are like, stay away from them. Jesus is like at the table, like, come on, guys. <laughs> come on. Compassion. Did Jesus ever change his view about uh, moral issues in his day to hang out with those people? No, but he was right in the middle. So, so you just be careful about this whole religious thing that, that you're going to camp yourself out over here and stay away from all the people over there. That's not the way of Jesus. We're called to be people of compassion. Lastly, integration. Integration. God wants to take our body and our soul, 
and integrate them. The truths or the claims of gender identity actually disintegrate people. But Jesus has actually come to make us whole and complete people. We've been given fullness in him. Let me end. Last week, Patrick and Pandy uh, shared with us, he's from Zimbabwe, he's an amazing man. Uh, he's, he was here preaching, and he told us about the dire conditions in Zimbabwe. And he said that the hospitals have no medicine. So if you get sick, you have to go to the hospital, and you better have some medicine with you, and they will like watch you. And if you have medicine, they'll give it to you. Or what's happening is if you give them the medicine, somebody in that hospital takes it and goes and sells it for a profit. And I was thinking about this condition and how hospitals have no medicine. And here's what I, I just, as I was ruminating on that, churches without truth are like hospitals without medicine. People can come, but they're just gonna languish and die. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you have no truth to offer them, you have no answers to help, it's like a hospital where someone just comes and we'll watch you. We can't help you. Friends, we have medicine. Jesus has medicine. See to it that no one takes you captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To support our work, you can like, share, subscribe, or you can donate at rind-church.org.